0: Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs, and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode. Hi everybody, Karen Fabian here. I hope you're having a wonderful day wherever it is that you're listening. Here we are at episode number 21. I want you to take a moment to think about the last song you really liked and why you liked it. Maybe it was the melody. Maybe it was a catchy tune. Maybe it was the theme or the words. Maybe it told a story that touched you in some way. Perhaps it was memorable. Maybe you found yourself humming it during the day. When we build yoga sequences, that's essentially what we're doing. We're using the poses, the pace, the music, if we choose to add music in, our tone of voice, our cues, all of it together forms the sequence we teach. If the idea of likening it to music doesn't resonate with you, how about cooking? When we cook, how we put everything together is the basis for the experience our friends and family will have when they enjoy it. So today, let's talk about sequencing in your classes. Now, just as before, let me start out by saying, I'm just sharing ideas here. I'm not saying that my way is the right way. Again, this podcast is about having conversations, and while it's hard to have them live because it's just me talking here, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I'm saying, so please add a comment on whatever platform you're listening on. So let's start out by establishing a few things. These initial factors will determine how the sequence is built and is an important place to start when it comes to building sequences. Let me also say, before we get into that, that I think it's important for you as a teacher to have a standard go-to sequence that you use for your teaching. I have to say, I find it curious that it seems that in teacher trainings these days, teachers are not given a sequence to use when they step out of training into the world to teach. I'd really love your thoughts on this, especially if you were given a sequence or if not given a sequence and how that's impacted your teaching, either positive or in other ways. My personal feeling is that it is so, so important for new teachers to be taught a sequence as part of their training and to use that in the first few years of their teaching. Now, why? Why do you think I'm suggesting this? Well, let's face it, we're new. When we're new, there are lots of things to manage, let alone our nerves and what we're going to be offering. So why would we want to make our job harder by creating a new sequence every day or week or even every month? Why not control what you can? Because I promise you, (laughs) there will be a lot that comes up in class that you never thought would now that you're out there teaching and you're going to have to manage all of it. Now, I know what you're going to say and I, I have a sense of what you might be thinking. Teaching the same sequence day in and day out is boring. And to that I say, well, I know what I wanna say, but I'll just say for you know, simple purposes, hogwash. If you're graduated from teacher training, if you've already completed your 200 hour, you know that old adage that every day you step on your mat is a new day and a new practice, and the poses you do are never the same from practice to practice. So yes, that's the truth. So there's that. Think about if, if I know you're a yoga teacher, yoga practitioner, and so perhaps you don't run, but if you do run, or even just think about a runner, every day that person is running. The runner doesn't change their pace thinking, I have to make this a lot more interesting. The runner just runs. Now, of course, with yoga, we have a lot more variety we can offer From an anatomical and biomechanical perspective, there are a lot of reasons to add variety. If it's mindful, it makes sense and it has logic to it. We're not just adding variety just to spice things up and to try to be fancy. But when you're new, have a basic sequence and stick with that until you have better control over all the moving parts that are involved in teaching. That's just my advice. I'd love to know what you think about it. So having said that, let's go back. I started out by saying that we need to establish a few things. The first thing is to think about, the first thing to think about when building a sequence is this. What is the point of the sequence? (laughs) It may seem kind of obvious, but what is the point? You'd be surprised, though. I bet there are plenty of times you step into the room and you just throw down a sequence because you took it yourself in someone else's class or saw some of the poses on social media or maybe some other kind of transient inspiration. This, in my opinion, lacks purpose and intention. So have a point to what you're offering. Some common themes might be, The point of the sequence is to get people moving after a long day of work. Or the point of this sequence is to help people prepare for the energetic shift that's really common when people transition from Sunday into Monday, the beginning of their week. Or the point of this sequence is an anatomical one around the hip and hip movements. So these are just some examples, and I'm sure you can think of more. Before you walk into the room to teach, have a point in mind. And that's probably going to mean that you need to sit in silence and kind of collect your thoughts. Hopefully you've done that even before you've gotten to the studio, but most certainly, if not, before you walk into the room. Again, if you're newer and you're working with your standard sequence, be sure the sequence you have is general in nature. Avoid standard sequences that target a specific type of yoga student and have one that's highly accessible. So along with the point of the sequence, the next thing is, who is the target student for this sequence? Maybe your class is in a studio that caters to a specific clientele. Maybe your class on the schedule is geared to a specific group, like beginners or restorative students. Maybe, like many teachers, your classes are geared towards the general population and are considered open classes, where you're presenting yoga in a highly accessible way. Or maybe it's the converse, where perhaps you're teaching advanced classes or a class where the sequence is very specific, like Bikram or Yin or Ashtanga. Whatever it is, be sure this is part of your sequence building foundation. So along with that, and somewhat included, also considered what level of experience is needed for the sequence. I'll give you an example on this point from a recent class I taught. I was in the middle of teaching, and while I had changed up the sequence a little bit, I was in a portion of the sequence that was fairly standard, which is bringing students into chair, bringing their hands together, and then twisting. Now, sometimes in classes, you might experience a sequence where at that point, the teacher offers side crow or might even just invite you to take side crow if it's quote unquote in your practice and it is somewhat logical because from a transition standpoint the students are already kind of turned to the side so it's somewhat easy for them to then move their hands to the floor and kind of set the arms up for side crow but in my head as the thought popped in i remembered the point of my sequence generally accessible post-work cardio focused flow now Does SideCrow fit into that sequence? In my opinion, not really. It's more appropriate for an arm balancing workshop or an advanced class. Now, does that mean it's wrong for you to add it into your classes? Of course not. Just have a point. In my head, I did not want to add something that was definitely not generally accessible and got in the way of cohesive flow in the class. Besides, if I added that in, I would have been adding that in for me more than them. And I probably was just in my head thinking it'd be a cool thing to add. So just remember, as soon as the motivation to do something lies more with you than your students, that should be a red flag to you that it's not something you wanna add. So let's look at the next thing. The next thing to consider is what is the energetic focus of the sequence? So we covered this a little already. Decide what the energetic vibe of the class is. Is it functional movement, athletic flow, beginners, restorative? This is again covered somewhat in the earlier things I shared, but it's worth noting as a standalone topic too. Another way to think about energetic flow might have to do with the time of day you're teaching. Is it the beginning of the day and you need people to wake up and get motivated? Is it after work and you need them to work off stress to become more present in their bodies and get ready for maybe dinner and a good night's rest? Being able to feel the energy in the room when you're teaching, as well as set a tone through what you offer in the sequence is a big part of effective teaching. All right, so now that we've established the point of our sequence, who we're teaching, and what level of experience they need, and what the energetic flow is of the class, we can start to think about what we're going to include. Now, this is where the idea of writing a song or cooking a meal comes into play, because this is where the notes or the ingredients, as it were, all come together. Now I'm going to break this up into some common sections that show up in classes, keeping in mind that depending on how you answer the other items we already discussed, some of these sections might be longer or shorter or might not appear at all. So let's start out with the section of poses, which is under what I call grounding centering. This is where you're going to start out with some sort of movements to get people centered into their body and warmed up. My belief is that this is a time to stay with the fundamentals, not to overchallenge people. When you think about the point of this section, it's not really to challenge them, it's to give them a chance to get a better connection between the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system. I'd stay away from really challenging core work or movements that require a lot of flexibility. Also, this section could be geared towards the energetic focus of the class, as well as anatomically-based sequencing you might be doing, you know, kind of in the general overall sequence you're going to be offering. Now, I would not, just as an aside, I would not recommend tackling anatomically-based sequencing until you're a little more experienced. So, for instance, if you're going to work on shoulder mobility, maybe start people on the back where the shoulders are more supported by the floor and... It helps on the back externally rotate the shoulders because people will be lying down with their palms facing up. So therefore the shoulders will be in external rotation. Having them make a few movements of the arms, if you kind of think about, if you were to make a snow angel, something along those lines, can be an effective way to kind of gauge what their range of motion is and for them to start to warm up that joint. Again, remember the simpler, the better. Now, the next section is the warm-up. And, you know, here we're generally talking about, most commonly, sun salutation A and B. Now, what could make a better (laughs) warm-up? Well, I'm sure you have plenty of suggestions as to how you mix up the opening sequence of your classes. And again, I'll emphasize the theme of simplifying. Remember, these beginning movements are not just for them to get warmed up, it's for you to get a sense of the class and for you to assess their coordination and experience level. This may be the time when you decide to lop off a part of your sequence because they're just not ready for it. Again, this is something you could not have predicted and another reason why it makes sense to have a standard sequence. So keep in mind, the SUN-AB sequence has some biomechanical challenges built in. It's floor facing and requires good upper body strength. It's palms down, so it's going to encourage internal rotation of the shoulders, so you'll have to cue them out of that. It's really kind of looking for good hip flexor flexibility, which they most likely don't have. So you can play with lifting the back heel for crescent lunge, or maybe do warrior two first, which seems to generally be more accessible. Again, my overall suggestion here is whatever you do, make it easy to understand and execute. Now, before we talk about other parts of the sequence, let me add a few general thoughts. First of all, if you need to stick to a particular sequence because the studio you're teaching in requires you to do so, of course you're going to honor that. If not, and you have some more flexibility, maybe in another studio that you're teaching in, please keep in mind that the additional components may not need to be included in your sequence. Maybe you'll skip a section on twisting that day, knowing that even a basic pose like warrior two has both the twisting and um, kind of side opening uh, component to it. And one more thing, think carefully about taking people from one type of pose to a completely different pose as it relates to the theme of the pose, right? So for instance, if you were to take people from airplane to dancer's pose, you'd pretty much be staying on the same plane of movement, right? They're going to be leaning forward. Hips are going to be facing down a little up. Then you'd kind of have them bend the back leg, grab onto the foot. So the hips are pretty much in the same position. Now, keep in mind, if you're going to do something like that, that's probably going to be the most they can tolerate on one leg. So I wouldn't be going from airplane to dancers to half moon to warrior two. You know, kind of think about overloading their nervous system and be conscious of um, how many things you add to one side. Now, if you're moving people, though, from something like airplane to warrior two and then on and on and on, not only are you changing kind of the type of pose. Right? So we're going from a standing balance to a standing posture. You're changing the position of the hips. So kind of neutral in a way, and then more open and warrior two. Now, again, this is just something to think about. In other words, if we know that this change in hip direction is challenging for people to coordinate, why do we offer it? <laughs> is it part of an overall theme to build leg stability Or hip flexibility. I'm not sure, but I can say experiencing it in my body is confusing. You know, sometimes I think it's helpful to try your own sequences and see how they feel in your own body. Although that might not even be a good yardstick because everybody's body is so different. But just keep asking yourself what is the reason I'm sequencing in this way? You know, if we take the energetics out of it, which we can't really avoid, but if we do, we're left with the pure biomechanics of it. Now, how steady overall will, the, will all the students in class be? Are we trying to offer something really hard because we wanna challenge them? Are we trying to build good body mechanics? Because that's definitely not gonna happen if we're flipping them from one position to another, to another, all on one leg, or moving from front to side, You know, these kinds of more complex multi-directional sequences work better one-on-one and certainly less in a group class when you have a ton of muscle compensations going on. So let's just take a quick look at some things that come up in the different areas of sequencing you might offer. Also, once you decide what categories you want to include in your sequencing, you can write out the poses you want to do. So for instance, if you're including twists, twisting, what specific twists will you offer? So let me also say that while many power yoga type classes work the sequence up to wheel, or dhanurasana, as the peak pose, you can, if you have the freedom where you teach, work up to a completely different peak pose. Maybe it's camel or half split. Um, you know, I remember for, for a while I was taking classes with a particular teacher and this teacher always worked up to a really different Uh, peak pose. And it was really interesting to see how the sequencing got us there. So let's just go through quickly some some of the main kind of focuses of the sequence that we can take it into in terms of different themes. And I'm just going to bring up a couple of things to look for in these chunks of the sequence from an anatomical standpoint. So in the twisting posture section, so whether we're talking Twisting crescent lunge, or seated twist, or prayer uh, prayer twist, anything along twisting triangle, anything along those lines. Just keep in mind that people are generally going to have less mobility through the thoracic spine and more mobility through the neck. So it's going to be really easy for them to turn their head and feel as if they're twisting through their core when actually they're not. So it can be helpful in these kinds of poses to keep their gaze down and or to kind of cue them around twisting from the shoulders down and that can involve things like, let's say I'm in twisting triangle, I got the left hand down, asking them to bring the right shoulder back, asking them to bring the right lung back, asking them to move from their rib cage, asking them to take the right hip back. So I haven't really said anything about the head. I might even say, try to avoid overturning the neck, perhaps even keep your gaze down, something along those lines. As far as balancing poses, again, what I mentioned earlier in the conversation is just being conscious of <clears throat> doing too much on one leg and how, how exhausting this can be. And, you know, just kind of generally acknowledging that as soon as we have people stand on one leg, they need to depend on lateral leg stabilizers like the glute medius and the tensor fasciae latae and the IT band that run on the lateral aspect of the hip and thigh to stabilize the standing leg and to stabilize the pelvis. And so it's already in the general population going to be challenging for them. So to add on a lot of things on one leg in the spirit of quote unquote making it hard, quote unquote making it interesting, is probably just going to end up in a lot of compensations from the hip to the knee to the ankle that are just going to reinforce in these students really unhealthy body mechanics. And we got to keep that in mind. You know, some of my background is in personal training and, you know, in looking at personal training and corrective exercise, there's so much more information shared with personal trainers in their training, which I'm participating in, around compensations. We don't get that kind of training in yoga. And once you start looking at movements in sport, in exercise, from the kinds of common overactive muscles people have, underactive muscles people have, compensations people do. It really is quite amazing, again, that we're teaching yoga in groups. And of course we are, although it does really bring up the question of the more, you know, kind of variation we offer, we're already dealing with. A lot of people in a room that all have different bodies and a lot of different compensations that they're gonna do. And what we want to do is have them stay in that healthy, balanced zone. And the best way we can help them do that is to keep the sequence simple. So I'll just say that and you guys can comment. Um, so lateral movements, you know, here we're talking about like your side angle lunge, your triangle. You know, anything where they're, you know, side plank off to the side. Um, Take a look for compensations like head drop. You know, this is gonna be really common. The head's out there in space. It's gonna be easy for them to just dump the head down. So maybe just cue them to keep the head more in line with the spine. Or just say, hey, if you feel like your head's drooping, just lift it a little bit. In terms of back bending, um, you know, this is a big topic. Uh, I'll just say here, look for really common compensations as people move into wheel, uh, bridge, not so much, but definitely wheel, where the upper trapezius takes over and the elbows wing out and the shoulder blades uh, elevate, even though they're upside down. And look for that action of the glute uh, maximus to externally rotate the hips, that'll look like their feet are turning out and encourage them to keep their feet more neutral. So that's you know just a really little brief bit on back bends. In terms of hips, right? So when you're teaching your hip postures, your pigeons, your lunges, your low lunges, lizard lunge, all of those variations, really keep in mind, you know, similar to what I was just talking about, this idea that we wanna keep people in this healthy Middle zone. We really don't want, I don't think, we really don't want to encourage people to move to the furthest end range they can go. So look for and cue students to stay into that healthy middle zone and help them with inquiry questions tap into if they feel like they're just sitting in their joints. So, you know, rather than saying things like, you should be feeling a lot of stretch here, or this is a deep stretch for the blah, 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 why don't we just ask people an open-ended question. So notice how you're feeling in this pose. See if you feel like you're sitting in your joints. If you're unfamiliar with what that means, do you feel like your joints are supported as you're in this shape? So if we can just ask kind of general inquiry questions, because remember, it's hard when we start to say things like, this will do this, or this will do that, because we don't know what's happening in the student's body. They could have a position where it looks like the hip flexor should be lengthening, but their experience of that pose in their body might be that their hip is already pretty lengthened, so they feel nothing. And that, or they could feel unsupported if they're hypermobile. So, again, it's hard to kind of suggest you should be feeling because we don't know. So, again, these general inquiry questions can help us get around that in terms of inversions um you know i just want to throw out um a a suggestion for shoulder stand in that if you're going to teach shoulder stand teach shoulder stand rather than just offering it to people to do if it's in their practice because this is a great way to have you teach them how to get into the post safely and reinforce that as we're in these postures, we wanna maintain the natural curves of the spine, especially when we talk about the cervical spine and the um, lordotic curve, the the kind of inward curve of the neck. So as you're walking them through the posture, the first thing I would do, and I do, is have them come onto their back as if they're gonna take bridge, hug their knees into their chest, and stay there with their knees hugged in, place their right hand underneath their neck to feel that natural inward curve. And then they're more aware that they shouldn't be flattening, tucking their chin in or flattening their neck to the ground because they're trying to use their shoulders as leverage to press up. And then there's a bunch of things I say after that to kind of walk them through getting the posture. But just wanted to point out that, that we really want to cue them into feeling the inward curve of the C-spine and maintaining that the whole way. And then again, when you get to the restorative class, uh, restorative uh, postures, just again, asking inquiry questions that keeps people focused on what they're doing. You know, Towards the end of class, sometimes they start to wander off and start to think about what they're gonna do after class. So just kind of, just a couple of things. This is where we're obviously gonna be giving them more silence, more space to start to bring uh, everything back down to hopefully a new, uh, better baseline healthier baseline. And then leaving, you know, in our general flow classes, we're probably gonna leave five to six minutes for shavasana, encouraging them to cover the eyes, encouraging them if you have room to go to the wall, take the legs up, you know, just giving them at least a good five minutes to be in silence. So before we wrap up, I just want, again, <laughs> to reemphasize the idea of keeping things simple. Even if we have an anatomical theme, let's say something along the lines of hip movements, the simpler, the better. You know, it allows us to decrease the chance that those muscle compensations I was talking about earlier will show up and gives our students a good blend of mind-body. When we try to do too much, the risk of injury and muscle compensation showing up just increases. In group classes, this is a factor that should be considered in our sequence building. Now, does that mean that what I'm saying is we make the class really easy? No. It may mean we cut back on complex transitions, do less of, one, do less of more things on one leg, that, that kind of stuff, and add longer holds. It might mean we work up to one peak moment and then leave the rest to a more kind of standard flow. So whatever you do, just like the cues that you use, have a reason for why you're doing it. So we've come now to the end of our podcast today, and I want to just let you know, I'm going to include in the show notes a link to my sequence building template. If you haven't downloaded it, um, you can download it. It'll walk you through a lot of what I talked about here on the podcast and give you a template that you can use to build sequences with ease. The other thing, of course, I want to suggest is to comment. Wherever you're listening, whether it's on iTunes, Podbean, or off of the link I uh, have on my website, leave a comment and let me know what you think about this. I think this is a really common conversational topic for yoga teachers. And if we had more time to sit around and chat, this is definitely something that would come up. So leave a comment and let me know what you think. And the website is barebonesyoga.com. B-A-R-E, barebonesyoga.com. And you can go to the website and take a look at any of the other things that I have in terms of online courses, books, that kind of thing. Although again, I'm gonna include on the um, page for this episode the link to download the sequence building template. And that is something that you should download right away because it's a really easy way to start to uh, customize your class sequences, if you're ready to do that, or even just build that initial sequence you're going to use for, I don't know, many, many months until it just becomes a standard part of you and your teaching, and gives you the freedom to be able to deal with all the other variables that you know inevitably are going to come up. So. I want to thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and I will speak with you soon on the next episode of the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast, Conversations for Yoga Teachers. Namaste.